Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, great to have you with us. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. It's a Q&A episode this week because we have lots of cues to provide A's for. That's questions and answers if you're not a regular listener. Great to have you with us. There's so much to discuss. We'll barrel straight into it. Will Dale is alongside me and the email box, the social media mailbox has been creaking under the weight of these questions. So we've emptied it out. There's plenty here. Uh, you can have the new ball. Uh, how about you bowl first? Okay. The first one's from Andrew Truswell, who emailed us, which is That's one of the- school. Yes, one of the various avenues we get questions. Um, following the introduction of Gen 3 in 2023, the current Mustangs and ZBs will move to Super 2. Is that confirmed? I've heard you say before that many of these cars have been secured by collectors. How many will actually become- are that eligible and how become how many will actually be available to run? Well, they're all eligible for Super 2 next year, ZB Commodores and Mustang GTs. But the big question is, is the next bit, how many are actually available? And I would reckon I'd be impressed if there were 12 to 15 cars on the grid next year for Super 2 of ZBs and Mustangs, simply because there's a huge quantity of cars that have been snapped up by collectors, and I can't see too many of them agreeing to lease them out for a year or two of Super 2, increased possibility. There could be accidents that remove some of that originality uh, and the authenticity. They're only original ones. Yeah, if you've got to go and cut a chassis rail off a championship-winning car or a car that won some races or was driven by a certain driver, that does affect the value for sure. Um, Then you've got some teams like Brad Jones Racing, Tickford Racing, who will have cars who have a history of running in the series anyway themselves. So you'd expect that BJR would pop up with a car, maybe two, that Tickford will keep one among their fleet for Super 2. So you'd expect those teams to you know, sell some, keep some, because they do have quite a few um, to, to choose from. But then you've got cars like the current Red Bull cars are owned by a private collector. They have been for a while. Mm. Whether he allows them to use them, because don't forget, Triple Eight are now in Super 2. What do they use for Super 2 next year? Because <laughs> mm. if the owner of these cars takes them away at the end of the year, what do they do then? Keeping I mean, in mind one is a Bathurst winner and prob- potentially a multiple championship mm, winner. Yeah. So- and on target now, as it sits to become the most winning car, and we're talking about Shane Van Gisbergen's current chassis, the most winning car in the history of the championship um, to beat Jamie Winkup's car, uh, the Kate Vodafone Commodore's record. So you have a Bathurst winner, a championship winner, potentially a two-time championship winner, potentially a two-time Bathurst winner. Yeah, that's not going to Super 2 next year. I can't can't see that (laughs) happening. No chance. And then the big question is, of the current VFs, FGXs, Nissans, obviously they moved to Super 3. How many people want to run Super 3 that would otherwise go, you know what, for the same price or very similar, we can go Super 2. So there's a bit of that to play out, Andrew. So we'll, we'll wait and see. But I think the, the question will, and part of the, the answer too is that what is in Super 3 now will flush out to what is and was V8 touring cars, which- Super 4. Yeah, so <laughs> we have had that discussion here at work before mm. about how many numbers can you go on Super to go down the line uh, when we have new gens of, 
of cars. But nevertheless, it's an interesting time because um, th- there's enough hardware around for the people who are in Super 2 to upgrade. But the question is the quality. Some teams really want a certain team's cars, but they can't have them. Uh, there's a whole pile of, of those sorts of elements at play. Kenny Martin, good question here. Don't mind this. Interested in your take. Back in 02, ProCar ran the 500, which, by the way, they did it in 01 as well, and that's the Sandown 500 because V8 supercars were having the Queensland 500. Now, with supercars not running the Sandown 500, a cause and thing that is <laughs> close did, to my heart. And by the way- I'd imagine why you like this question. We, we're, going to, we're going to start the- uh, We're going to really push this hard in upcoming weeks and months. Which category would you guys like to see take up the mantle of the Sandown 500 should supercars not take it? He thinks TCR is an obvious choice, but he also wouldn't mind seeing something like- a proddy car race or a Trans Am Enduro? Thoughts? <laughs> well, my first thought is um, thinking back to last week's episode of Repco Supercars Weekly where you expressed delight and confoundment that the Supercars E-Series is doing a Sandown Enduro. <laughs> Annoying. I was pissed. <laughs> if you're going to do a Sandown Enduro, do it for real. Uh, um if, they, if there was going to be a for real Sandown 500 Enduro that did not feature supercars, I actually like the production car idea because, I mean, you look at the effect that the six hours had with Bathurst and if you ran it to that rule set, it's kind of back to the event's roots back in the 60s where well, it was for series well, production. populated by BMWs. Well, you know, pr- populated by road cars, <laughs> let's say. Uh, TCR? Yes, no? Maybe? Do TCRs work as an endurance car? I don't think so. Not here. Yeah. I mean, you've got to spend on them to turn them into enduro spec with the reg- you know, the, the required f- refueling apparatus. And uh, we've seen with the Bathurst International that that original concept was for a 500K mm. um, enduro and it's gone away from that. You know, COVID was a part of that, but also the, the sheer cost. I, I see them as sprint cars. To they, me, they just need to consolidate yeah, on what they, they do best. You know, they really. had a year off with COVID. They're just still getting their wheels rolling again. So I don't think that this would be an outcome for them. If I had to pick something that was floating around, I think it's GTs. Ah, so back to the events pro car routes. That's yeah, it was similar, yeah, very similar. Yes. I'm not sure you could top it up with proddy cars because the speed disparity would be pretty wild. Yeah. But I, I would see it as a. A very plausible part of a GT World Challenge Australia presented by Fanatec to use its full term uh, championship and part of the endurance championship. 500Ks would be over and done in three, three and a half hours. We've seen there was a GT Enduro, wasn't called a Sandown 500. I think it was <laughs> a Sandown GT Classic in 2007, eight, somewhere in that period uh, that Alan Simonson's Ferrari won. So... Yeah, for, for my vote, I think you'd get a solid field of 20 to 30 GT cars and a bit of a mixture of classes and give everyone enough warning to have it coming and I think that would be the, the most likely feasible outcome well, anyway. Cons- considering Shannon's already have a September Round. weekend yeah, exactly at right. Sandown, that would make a logical thing to headline Looks one of those. Looks and feels right. Looks yeah. and feels right for sure. Uh, Trent Urza. Most successful AU Falcon and why was it a shitbox for Ford? <laughs> the second half of the question is a lot easier to answer than the first. Uh, it just wasn't competitive with the VT and VX Commodores and they were very um, – the aero package arrived l- very late as mm. well. Like when the car made its race debut at Adel- Albert Park in 1999, um, there weren't a heap of AUs on the grid and there was a – ballot from memory as to which teams received Mm. their aero kits and when you factor that that when you when you plan it by ballot that's telling you that things are cutting it fine and when you consider that those cars are 
made their race debut, what, six months after the VT Commodore. That's a heck of a head start to give. And they were up against, I don't think they ever played the political game well in that period. I think Holden did it far better. But Holden had the Holden Racing team, yeah. which which killed everybody. Uh, you, you know, you could have had, you know, more funding, more everything on the blue side. I mean, they, they threw some money around at Ford with the AU period, mm. the lounge stuff and Fred Gibson era, and they spent some big money, but still they didn't outcome, um, overcome the other mobs. And so. not all the Ford teams could agree on what the parity direction should have been. I mean, Glenn Seaton Racing weren't really on board, as Glenn talks about in his book, um, with the parity change that was eventually made to take the, the Commodore's front under train, the, basically the bottom half of their front front bar. He wasn't really in agreement that that would deliver the advantage that they thought it would. Nothing like a DJR and Seaton argument. There was a few of those. And a bit of Larco. Yeah, a bit of Larco, a bit of that. Most successful AU Falcon for mine, I mean, the most memorable is the Green-Eyed Monster, but is it the most successful? I don't think so. I'm going Marcus Ambrose. Yeah, Marcus Ambrose, perfect car. That makes sense. I'd also nominate um, Delilah, the DJR Mm. car that won the Sandown 500. No, not Sandown 500. 500. I've indoctrinated. 500. Yeah, you're, on yeah, the way back. Yeah. you're on the way back. Uh, I'd nominate that car or potentially one of the earlier DJR cars that won a few races as well. But, uh, yeah, it's not exactly a big selection it, to choose from. It's slim pickings, that's yeah. for sure. Jamie Mitchell, if you go, <laughs> Jamie Mitchell, if you guys could bring back anything from the 90s or ni- uh, 90s, noughties, early era supercars, what would it be? His wish list, exhaust flames, numbers on the front door, star spoke wheels, Big, thick driver names on the windows that you can actually read and Channel 10's epic motorsport intro song. <laughs> I, I really want to know what that intro song was, where it came from, what the title was. and <laughs> Yeah, that one. Stop, yeah. stop, otherwise we have to pay a royalty. Yeah, true. I, yeah. I pulled it up early. Yeah. Uh, it went for 10 years, didn't it, really, that Channel 10 theme music, the home of motorsport, which David White was really the, the architect across all of that with so many people who were involved on air and behind the scenes. They became... You know, the tagline. They were the home of motorsport. Network Absolutely. 10 from the late 90s through to the, the mid-2000s. I'm voting big, thick driver names on the windows. They have shrunk in the last few years to stupidly small <laughs> sizes. And now with the vents in those back windows where the names and the letters concave and have to follow the curvature of the window, it's ridiculous. They're worthless being there. And particularly when you have an enduro with two names there, mm. they're still just as small. They're a waste of space. They're a waste of time. Fix it. Make them bigger or put them somewhere else on the car in a predetermined place where everyone has to run them. Well, first point, they're not going to be able to make them bigger because next year the roof lines of the cars are going to go down even further with well, Gen 3, so you're going to have less real put estate. Put them in a spot where everyone can, has to put them and everyone can read them. Point two... They're on the windscreen now in a massively large font that's hard, that's impossible to miss. Doesn't help you if you can only see the cars from the side. Yeah. Seriously, if you're trackside at a track and, and you 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 got to be able to see it. If you're going to have it, you got to have it so you can see it. There's no point to go, oh, but it's on the front and it's big and it's a token small effort on the side. If you're not going to make Look, it big can, enough, don't put them there. Just uh, take them I'd concur with that. I mean, you also have the number on the side, which comes back neatly to Jamie's point about the numbers on the front door. I would like to see that. I'd like to see that come back. I understand why it was taken away. Every sponsorship manager in the category is currently throwing stones at your head. Same for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Different values on different people's doors, though. That's for sure. Um, but, yes, it would be nice. But I don't see it as a earth-shattering thing like 
But I, I think we well, see, okay, we see so it a the, bit the from issue with the number with names on the sides of the car is the same one you'll encounter with the numbers because the windows will get smaller yeah. and they'll get yeah. even smaller than they are now. So you got to find somewhere else to put them anyway. Yeah. So put them on, put them back on the doors. So simple. Mark Dobson, this is funny. So this is a segue. Numbers on doors or numbers <laughs> anywhere. Three cars with the same number. Mark Dobson, what is the history of the Mustangs that the Johnsons drove this week at Queensland Raceway in their unique? Um, three generational laps around Ipswich. So two of the cars are the two that Anton Di Pasquale and Will Davison are currently racing in the championship that you were new at the start of last year. Restickered with Rest- well, yes, Johnson and I'll get to that point. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other car is the one that will form the basis of Michael Anderson's wildcard um, entry for the Bathurst 1000 this year. And you can tell them apart. So Dick Johnson was dry, even though they all had Johnson and the number 17 on the windows, you can tell them apart. Dick was in Michael Anderson's car because there's no was no hamburger cam on the roof. Uh, Jet was in Anton's car because you can see where they've put a number 17 with a black background over the top of Anton's number 11. And that means Stevie J was in Davo's car because the number 17 had a clear background. And those two have shared a car 17 before way yes. back in the day too. So. There you go, Mark. That is who was in what of the the three cars, which was a cool, cool thing. That's oh, a re- that's probably one of the better team sponsorship activations, media calls of recent times. We've gone away from all that stuff, I guess, because we're so the championship's so busy. There's so much stuff going on, but there is still room for a bit of PR thinking. Because look at the publicity that that generated for the team for Shell V Power, um, and clearly Ryan's story was a huge part of that all coming together. It was his idea, and he makes that sort of stuff happen. And he made a moment that special for the family, special for the team and got plenty of media miles, uh, television, online, that otherwise supercars and the team aren't getting. And the, the window for being able to execute something like that is closing. I mean, Dick's mm. not getting any younger, unfortunately. And as he said, this may be the only time we get to do this. And what a fantastic thing it was to see. Pretty cool. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Jamie Stebbins, should supercars use the progressive grid format for the Super Sprint rounds? Only one qualifying session for the weekend and more racing. The, the old journo and me appreciates the idea of one qualifying session because it means if you had it on Friday, then you have a clear form guide and selling point for the rest of the weekend. But... The um, fan in me remembers what it was like to see your driver get turned around early in race <laughs> one and um, having to see them go from the front to the back of the grid from for the rest of the weekend. So um, I'm probably not a fan of a progressive grid format, and I reckon a lot of drivers would feel the same I for that, that reason. There's those two elements. There's that if you have something happen to you that's not your fault, your weekend's largely toast, depending on when it happens in the weekend. And as a race car driver, nothing's ever your fault. Of course not. Just ask them. But the other thing that sort of springs from this is, and it was, it's been going for some time, and it's got to change. At Winton on Saturday, and Super Sprint rounds in general, we can't have a situation where qualifying and the process of qualifying through multiple legs is just as long, if not longer, than the actual race that it determines the grid for. The time that it takes to do all that. So why aren't we doing a very short, sharp qualifying and then use that running time up? Because clearly they want content. Fox Sports need content for the television to put the cars on the track. 
they want content for the fans standing there on the, the fence to see supercars on the track. Surely if it takes a combined amount of time to do all this, shorten it up, have a short, sharp qualifying, and then give them another race or shorten up the Saturday afternoon race and have two races. Give them more more racing. I mean, we don't watch an hour of football training before we watch an AFL game or an NRL game. It's, it feels would. a lot like that. Some people do, but seriously, <laughs> that they're, they're the hardcores and they're not the majority. But it's but, the equivalent yeah. factor of it's a bit madness that the time that it takes to determine the grid, which, by the way, we then line them up in the order of their speed and wonder why they don't pass one another. You're uh, not which advocating is a, a reverse grid, No, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that we we complain as an industry and as fans about not enough passing and there's not anything happening. Well, what do you expect in any form of the sport when motorsport traditionally lines them all up in the order of which they're faster than one another as and then they don't pass? Uh, then what's the thought? alternative? Who would have thought? Well, what's line the alternative? them up supercross style. <laughs> Design some different tracks. Come up with something else. I'm sick of hearing people sucking about stuff that's not going to change anytime soon. But why don't we do progressive grids at those certain tracks where the, the qualifying's tight and they're worried about like too too many convoluted qualifying formats and yeah, I'm kind of over the spring leg qualifying. I know why it exists, but but it's- we ran for years and years and years. Like if the onus is on the drivers to get out of the way at Perth or Tassie or wherever it might be. Let's do. And we a still see cars grid. tripping over each other. They still anyway. trip over one another, even if you let twelve of them out at once. So, seriously, like Pro- progressive grid doesn't solve that issue. It just means you're limited to it happening potentially in one session instead of three. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like the idea of having an extra race on Saturday and then moving qualifying to Friday afternoon because yep. then, then yep. you've got or the qualifying session for those races anyway to Friday afternoon because you have a form guide. You've got something actually tangible to talk about. And that probably leads to another question that I think pops up later, but I'm sure plenty of fans are talking about, is the two-day race format. And and I'm sure that that's a topic that's been chewed on, particularly from, from Winton onwards. Mm. The reality is that it's, it's, an, it's an attempt to save cost, save yeah. funds, but the reality is it's costing in other areas because it's compressing those event weekends. So... Fans are getting very little time with drivers. There's little time for them to do corporate events that they would normally do and sponsorship activations and merchandise visits because the schedule's compacted into two days. So I think we sort of solve a couple of things here where they're, they're all there anyway. They're all set up on Fridays. So for the sake of maybe one more night's accommodation, instead of cooking the crews on two compressed days, mm. let's let's tick the box and get qualifying back to Friday. So then there's something to report on the news that night that such and such has poll for tomorrow's first race of the insert round name here. Then you've just spread it out a little bit more. Then you've got all these things that they tick the box that they fix all these things by just opening up the accordion of the the event weekend. Yeah, no, totally agreed. Chris Wilson asks, apologies as I have asked this before, but why was the Moffat Sonova CB Falcon originally carburetor-fed instead of fuel-injected? Was it solely down to the engine supplier at the time? Solely down to Alan Moffat's wallet. Yes. That yeah. was what it was all about. The Holman and Moody carburetted V8 engine was cheaper than the fuel-injected units that were going at the time, although Alan pretty quickly figured that um, competitiveness for the next year was key, so he did a deal with DJR for a, a fuel-injected engine to... Um, be in that car for 1994. So, yeah, purely uh, a dollar thing. Tim Matheson, don't mind this. This is interesting. I like when we get different questions. Uh, we know you guys live and breathe all things sleuth, V8s and motorsport, but what's your favourite pastime that has nothing to do with racing? 
like traveling, which, you know, the last the last couple of years has sucked on that front. It's a hobby that you haven't really been able to engage in. Yeah, and I generally time holidays for Pearl Jam tours. So yeah, um, I was going to say, yeah. if I was picking you, I'd be going music. Yeah, yeah. Yep, 100%. Have you been to many motorsport-connected concerts? Um, or have you kept your music interest very distinct from your motorsport? As in the whole rock race format, have I gone? Yeah, like that. I, like I also, used- have you been to any venues that may have... <laughs> hosted racing and well, well on point one yeah i've been to a few like back when i lived in because i'm from north queensland back when i used to go to the Townsville 400 whether it was as a punter or as a journo i'd generally go watch the concert on the saturday night so i saw like in excess jimmy barnes um when i started working there i got to um through um the supercars pr person at the time got to go backstage and watch the living end which was fantastic because nice. i've always wanted to end. see them they rock um to your second point i have definitely watched um pearl jam live in concert in the stadium that's in the middle of the mexican grand prix circuit i thought that was the Hermanos case that's Rodriguez. where i was yeah. going with that point yeah yeah where the track Sol. goes through the middle of the stadium yeah through that stadium where the podium where the podium is set up that is where the stage was set up Cool. And it was a very, very boisterous crowd. <laughs> um, yeah, don't really remember much of that show, to be honest, because I th- <laughs> thought it might have been the last. Um, and uh, one of the unfortunate things, I'd love to go see Pearl Jam on their European tour that's coming up next, because one of the first stops is Imola. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So this is kind of not nothing not to that do removed. with racing. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. I think that you'll find for all of our listeners too, You'll find a way to blend your motorsport interest into just about anything in your life, whether it's where you're going on a holiday. Oh, there just so happens to be a race event on, darling. Let's go and have a look at this. There's there's a museum over here. Oh, wow, look at this. It's got some old cars in it. Jess, my wife and I have jef- definitely watched um, Jamiroquai at the Le Mans 24 hour <laughs> a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I sort of thought I, I better not try to pass the, the question off here, but favourite pastime that has nothing to do with racing I like other sports, but I guess that has well, – it doesn't really have anything to do with racing. I, I love AFL. I'm a huge AFL follower and Hawthorne supporter. And, yeah, it's it's the, the thing that I like to follow and get involved in. And I'd say you know, it has nothing to do with racing directly. They're both sport. And I guess, though, that the commonality is that there's a lot of people in racing who are passionate football followers or supporters of the club I support or other clubs or things like that. So there's been plenty of chat over the, the years at racetracks about um, – respective football teams forms and usually it's a good icebreaker for meetings and for um stuff like that oh down here especially big time like it's um coming from coming from north queensland and then living in sydney for so many years it's it's amazing how ingrained afl is in culture down here like um, i was honestly not shocked but pleasantly surprised to see just how how widespread it is that Mm. you just even if you're a casual fan you have a team Who's your team? North Melbourne. Oh. Yeah, it's not been a good year. When you can pick your team? Uh, family connection. Oh, okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, fair point. That's that's hard to argue. Uh, Rob Thompson, he's got a good question. What happened to the Big Kev VT Commodore? Well, it's still around. Um, it is actually at the National Motor Racing Museum as we speak. But don't go looking for a yellow Commodore because no. you won't find it in that no. form. It is... It started its life as a Holden Racing Team Commodore VT. Or the first. The first Holden yeah. Racing Team Commodore VT and was, of course, debuted by Greg Murphy at Calder Park, was then used by Craig Lowndes to seal the 98 Australian Touring Car title and then became the number one car for he and Mark Scaife at the Sandown and Bathurst Enduros. And Scaife put it on pole at Bathurst. 
Craig used it to win the Adelaide 500 the following year and then it went off to big uh, – no, it went via John Deere, Mark Poole, James Rosenberg and then on to uh, Paul Morris. Of course, he won at Calder in 2001 in that car. It's ended up being restored to its Lounge Scaife 98 uh, livery and spec and it's sitting at the National Motor Racing Museum as we speak. So have a look at it. It's uh, it's there on display, open six days a week, by the way. Don't try and look at it on Tuesdays. No, Tuesday, close. You'll have to look through the window. You can't see through the window. I've tried. <laughs> uh, you can't see that far through the halls to be able to see it. Uh, but it's in the National Motor Racing Museum among their amazing collection of cars, bikes, speedway cars, motorsport memorabilia. Uh, it's really cool. If you're in that part of New South Wales or if you're at an event at Mount Panorama, uh, stop in and have a look. It's really worth the visit. There's always something new or something changed or an exhibition. Um, I'm hearing that they've got some cool ideas in store for later in the year for uh, the Bathurst 1000 coming up in October. Uh, Rod Binding, um, and this has got a little museum link, which we'll, we'll point out in a second. The Perkins 96 Bathurst VP, was it a VR converted back to VP or did Larry build a new VP for the race? Do you know its history? I love the pods. They get me through the hour commute every shift. Well, the answer is lying at the National Motor Racing Museum because that's the only place with stock left of our Perkins Engineering Car History book. So we'll give you a little bit of a, a, <laughs> a tease, though. It, it wasn't a brand-new car. No, Larry did build a brand-new car for – or there was a brand-new car built ahead of those Enduros. As a VR. As a VR. Um, but he elected due to the um, front undertray of the VR model being clipped ahead of the Enduros um, to go back to the VP to ret- – to retrofit – a VR with VP panels, convert it back, um, as it meant he had a lovely full tra- full length under tray to um to go to the mountain with. <laughs> as, as it, it meant he had a lovely full tray. Sounds like yeah. he was serving up drinks. Uh, it didn't go so well. No. I always remember the um Stony cartoon of um what was it, Rocky the, the with, Rock Commodore with, with the, the old, yeah, yeah, and Larry telling Brocky. Yeah, yeah, it's got a great undertray. <laughs> uh, Rod, if you want to know more and read the full history of that car, um, grab a copy of the book from the National Motor Racing Museum, give them a call, uh, or you can find out more details via their Facebook page or the Museum's Bathurst website, um, not just about the Perkins book but about the, the museum overall. Justin Alden asks, are you able to please clarify the status of the road-going Camaro in Australia? I know Walkinshaw Automotive was re-engineering for, the market, for our market for some time, but a quick look on the GMSV website and there's no Camaro. So if it's not being sold here, I'm curious as to Chevrolet's business case for having a Gen 3 Camaro supercar. Well, it's not really Chevrolet's business case, is it? Supercar's business case to have a, a GM product on the grid. So you're right, Justin. You look on the GMSV. That's the G- General Motors Specialty Vehicles um, website, which a lot of people think that's HSV rebranded. It's actually not. It's GM. Mm. It, it's GM Specialty Vehicles. And you're right. There's no Camaro. They're Silverados. They're uh, Corvette, of course, which is the um, the new spec, new era Corvette is among their range. So there's not a, a GMSV slash GM Camaro road car purchasable. Um, really, it was a case of this is about the brand. So, that, yes, there's no Camaro that you can go and buy, but there are GMSV products that you can buy. And the Camaro is the most relevant car to go against the Mustang, both from an historic point of view and from a platform point of view for Gen 3 of supercars. So it's a little bit like, I mean, you pointed this out before we came on the pod, 
It'd be like Nissan racing the Altima because that's kind of the shape of car that suits the category, but it's also about pushing the Nissan brand as it was at the time and selling and pushing all of their range of selling small patrols, cars, medium cars, four-wheel drives, yeah. whatever it might be. This is the, the same scenario. So I, I think probably our listeners and, and the audience of motorsport in Australia – uh, motorsport's going to a place now where that connection between uh, the car that you see on the track and the car that's in the, the the showroom, it's almost just about fully broken now. And it's more about the brand than about – I mean, you look at Volvo, for example, that was a brand build. Whenever they've come into motorsport and gone, it's been about, yes, the product, but the brand as a halo has been where their whole impetus for that program has come from. And that's the case with pretty much all these programs now. Matt Bottrell asks, love the Q&As. This is a question from my wife. Thanks, she wa- Mrs. Bottrell. Yes. Thank- she wants to know why Jessica Yates never and has never had any supercars branding on any of her clothes. The lads and even Rihanna always have supercars logo and brought on their outfits, but Jess never does. It's a good question when you stop and think about it, but there's a very simple answer because Jess doesn't work for supercars. Oh, she is Fox Sports talent and has been for a long time. Yep. And if you look at any other Fox Sports sport, AFL, NRL, um, anything else that they do. Obviously, they're very strong with having female presenters, which they've done for a very long time. Mm. And, and they don't wear, you know, AFL logos, NRL logos, or whatever the sport or the code is. So it's. Or a, Fox logos for that yeah, matter. Yeah, or even Fox, correct. That's right. So um, I like it. I, I think it, it stands out as, you know, Jessica's the host. Um, Better than being stuck. I mean, it's a clear you, differentiator. It's a clear differentiator yeah. between um, her and and the others. And yes, Rihanna's in the pit lane, and and you know we've had Charlie Robinson in the past, and Brian Ingerson and, and people like that doing those sorts of roles. Um, but I think when you when you're the host and you are also network talent, it's a bit of a different scenario and, and situation. Uh, Sebastian De Selvo, where is Craig Lowndes' final full time chassis? I knew it was sold to a private collector, but where is it now? The short answer is in Scotty Taylor's shed. <laughs> in Queensland. Yeah. So Scotty Taylor, the um, GT racer and motorsport well, enthusiast. Well, Scott Taylor. Scott Taylor. Not to confuse with yeah, Scotty Taylor, yeah. the ex-touring um, car racer of the 80s and 90s and 70s. Yes. Um, he purchased that car late in 2018, and I think the original plan was to have it restored back to as it was when when Craig Lowndes and Steve Richards won that year's Bathurst 1000. But in the end, it's just been left as it was, as it finished the, Craig's last full-time race at the Newcastle 500 that year. With that gold livery that was a one-off for that mm, weekend. Which, the gold thing, better electrical era style yeah, livery. Yeah, and I reckon that's a better livery than the Bathurst yeah. livery. So it does certainly stand out. Quickly, by the way, the themotorsporttrader.com.au are great friends of ours. They're keeping motorsport memories alive. Luke and his team are all over it if you're into uh, motorsport memorabilia, race suits, car parts, panels. Jump on their website for a bit of a look, Motorsport, the Motorsport Trader, I should say, .com.au. Uh, Andy Thomas, is Adelaide still on the cards for later this year? As far as we know, everything is still going full steam ahead. I think they're still working at locking in a major concert act. I think I was reading in the Adelaide Advertiser the current rumour is Powderfinger, which if that's if that comes a reformation. to be, yeah, um, getting the band back together in the most literal sense, mm. um, that would be fantastic, but... Yeah, as far as as far as we're aware, yeah. it's all still first going. weekend of December is the go. Uh, Anthony Kernich, what's your opinion on the Monaco Grand Prix? It's a snooze fest every year, and the TV direction's appalling. Is its time up? I didn't think it was that boring this year. Um, the TV direction is appalling. That's all. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think it's times up. I mean, it is 
the the race has for the last 30 40 years been as it is now the cars are out, the cars outgrew the Monaco Grand Prix circuit in 1968. <laughs> I mean, this is not a new thing, but it is there as a heritage event. It's it is still the jewel in the crown for Formula One. All these emerging events, talk, people talking about Miami and other things. Well, maybe when they've got 80 years of history, let's let's come talk. Can't help but think that there's a bit of a push behind all this because one of the grating points with Formula One and and Anthony refers to it in his question about the TV direction. Formula One doesn't control the television for the Monaco mm. Grand Prix. It's done, they do it themselves. The TV directing's horrible. Like, they can't follow a race. It has been like that for a very, very, very long time. Yes. Uh, Formula One has a real history. They've done a better job in recent years where they used to have really flat, boring front-on shots that just totally didn't show the speed of the cars and the brutality of the cars. They do a much better job of that in more recent years. Oh, absolutely. But you watch Monaco and you go, oh, who's rewound us back to whoop-whoopsville in television mm. broadcasting? I reckon there's a bit of that whole let's keep the story out there and the pressure on because Formula 1 clearly want to take that element of that event over, which is what they do with every other race. But I can't help but think that there's a bit of that in play. But you do have all these venues and all these places that want to race, and if they pay big biscuits... And Monaco does not. And Monaco doesn't, from what I know or from what I think, what I've heard, it has to be vulnerable, but I feel like it's more a put the pressure on to get what you want as Formula One because you've always got to threaten to be able to get change in Works these sort of situations. So I can't help but feel that there's a bit of that going on. It would be a huge disaster if they somehow um, killed off the, the Monaco Grand Prix. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Nathan Walton, when is Larco doing a bio... Ugh. When is Larco doing a biography, is what I was trying to say. Well, it's an interesting question because a biography is a book that is not an autobiography. So someone else could write a book about Larco and be a biography that he has nothing to do with. So if he doesn't want to do a okay. book... When is Larco doing a book? He's, not doing, a book. he's yeah. not doing a book. Um, I've asked him. He's not that keen on it. He's not a me, 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 look at me kind of guy. Which is a shame because he's got fantastic stories and he's a great storyteller. Oh, he's a ripper. He's a ripper. Uh, I think over time maybe we could apply some pressure and just twist that arm a little bit. It has worked with some other people in the past. Uh, N. Crompton was one. Didn't want to do a book 10 years ago. What do we do? A book. Mm. So you never know. But right now um, I don't think it's front of mind for Larco. Rolf Mamers, which Bathurst had the most different brands racing in it and how many were represented? Great question, Rolf, and we had to go to the database. Our man Shane Rogers has uh, had a bit of smoke coming off the keyboard this week to get us this. <laughs> the answer is 15, 1966 and 1967, but they weren't the same brands each year. So would you like me to run you through them? Please Will? do. Please so 66, do. Morris, Chrysler, Triumph, Fiat, Volvo, Toyota, Holden, Isuzu, Datsun, Ford, Hillman, Renault, Prince, Studebaker, Vauxhall. Now, Prince and Datsun were separate at the time, so mm. they are different brands. For 67, Alfa Romeo, Audi and Dodge were in. 
Chrysler, Isuzu, and Studebaker were out. So 15 is the record for the most different brands in a Bathurst. Well, I was going to say Bathurst 1000, but back then it was a 500. Back in the great race. And we're probably not going to come near that. We're probably not even going to come near well, I don't halfway think to double figures. I reckon you'd struggle to get to that in a 12-hour, yeah. actually. Andrew McLean, who were the original Castrol Cougars? I thought there were four. Is this the case? I know Melinda Price and Karen Brewer were two. Who were the other two? Melinda and Karen were the only two that raced the Castrol Cougars car, but the other two, when they were announced and launched, at, I think it was Calder, wasn't it, that they Calder, were? Calder, yeah. Um, it was Kim Watkins, who was a Channel 9 uh, TV presenter at the time and had dra- uh, driven in the celebrity race at the Adelaide Grand Prix and was the other Michelle Filkey, yep, the Australian, Australian netballer, netball who was really good in uh, the Calibri year of the Celebrity Challenge. She won it. She won it, that's right. Her yeah. and Kirsty Marshall were duking it out while poor... Brother Crompton was um, navigating for Dame Edna Everidge around yes. the back of the field somewhere. Um, so they were the other two original Castrol Cougars that were part of that program. There were other drivers who tested that car. Uh, Nicole Pretty was one of them, mm. um, but wasn't part of the Castrol Cougar program per se that was launched and unveiled. But, yeah, Melinda and Karen were the two that raced, but there were, were Kim and Michelle were the, were the other two. Uh, Victor Petruno is a regular listener. Uh, chassis question. Why did Paul Wheel Racing build and debut so many AU Falcons between 1999 and 2002? He thinks there was five, which he's, he's right on. At the time, I felt it seemed a bit like overkill for what was a midfield privateer single car team. Because Wheelie didn't really shunt too many cars, though, did he? It's well, he not shunted like the first one. He sh- yeah, he did shunt the first one. But, <laughs> but there weren't many that were written off and required them to build another. Well, I think they sold quite a few of them along the journey as mm. they went, and they kept refining them and tweaking them up and building them a bit better and uh, clearly they're in a position to be able to do it as a business and KNJ Thermal was growing and, um, of course, later they they rolled their team off into becoming a, a team in Clayton with what was Team Brock initially and PWR racing later. But, yeah, I think it was just the case that they did. I mean, they sold a car to Cameron McLean when he needed an AU, so they actually had a market to, to sell some of these cars. So it wasn't like they, you know, built another one and put the other one in the shed and, you know, yes. there's five to choose from. Um, they moved them on as they were, were rolling through. I think at one point they had two at once, uh, which was the period when then Paul went and drove for Stone Brothers. And Marcus Ambrose actually tested one of the K&J cars at um, Queensland Raceway as part of a bit of a, hey, you, you try mine, I try yours, and then they ended up driving together for um, the Queensland and Bathurst Enduros that year. So, yeah, there you go. David Hamilton, the team owners you interview seem to indicate there's no actual prize money in supercars. Is the $1,000 armour all check for Paul the biggest payout of the meeting? Of any individual meeting, I think that would be the case, would it not? Well, there is no prize money. Mm. It's it's all divvied up and handed out under what was the franchise and now the charter. Uh, so there's there's no actual. You finish first, therefore you get fifteen thousand dollars, and you finish seventh, and you get eight thousand dollars. Doesn't that, that's work not like been that. the case for a long, no, long not time for a now. very long time. So, but for the strict question, yeah, that's probably the biggest actual. Was it five grand at Bathurst? I think it is for pole there. Yeah, and then there's whatever there is for the golden rattle gun for the pit stop competition, which is a one off. That's um, twenty five grand, isn't it, to win that? Yeah, and then sort of was right. it ten grand for the overall pole, pole champion for the year? Yeah, they're they're the actual you know visible checks and prize money per se, but prize money is not paid yeah. for where you finish like it would be for say last weekend's Indy five hundred where there was. $16 million, I think I read somewhere, prize money in total, and the winner gets 
whatever it was, two point something or other. So. Yeah, which I've always found to be a bit of a misnomer in American motorsport. Like w- before NASCAR moved to the charter system, um, you'd always see every year Marcus Ambrose reported as one of the richest people in a, richest sports pe- Australian sports people around the world based on him his earnings from an entire NASCAR season when it's really – it's not the, him getting it. No, nah, it's the car that gets that, <laughs> and then it's divvied up between the driver, the owner, and everyone, so forth, whatever deal. the deal is. Yep, yep. Shane Best asks, having watched the Bathurst 6-hour six six hour and 12-hour this year, why do we start the clock when the safety car pulls off? We know now, we know how long the track is and how fast the safety car goes. Why can't we just have the safety car move off the grid in time for the front row to arrive back at the start line at the right time? They manage it on the Nordschleife, so why can't we? So when he says the safety car pulls off, I think like he pulls means away pulls away start. from the grid. Yes. So when the when the cars leave the grid for the first time behind the safety car, the clock begins from 12 hours countdown. I'm fine with it. Give them a siding lap. If it's, it means, what, 11 hours and 57 minutes and 45 seconds on the clock, I wouldn't be too fussed about it. Why, why change it? Yeah. I'm cool with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could try to time it so as they come back around and roll across the line with 12 hours on the clock, but, yeah. Do you, do you remember when they used to be real sticklers for the start of the great race to be exactly on 10 o'clock and then in 89 um, the formation lap finished like three or four minutes before oh, 10? Oh, then they held they them They just there. held them on the grid. <laughs> and Meanwhile, there's Turbo Sierra's cooking their heads off. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't Shane, I, I take your point, but I... I don't think it's a big issue. And if they do it at the Nordschleife, then great. They, they must do it really well yeah, at the Nordschleife. I think it's a long you know, lap. Here in Australia, we do tend to do things differently our own way anyway. So let's be different. Let's not follow what everyone else does. Jared Weston, why does Winton get such a raw deal from supercars? That event would be so much better if given if given a better date. What would a better date be for Winton? I reckon it's been in nearly every month of the year that you could throw at it. Yeah. It, it's opened the season in January or February. It's been in March, April. It's oh, been in, there in November in 2012 and yep. it was pretty sticky. Yeah, it's been in June. I think it's been July. in July and August. There's, It's been tried in pretty much every spot on the calendar it can be. So, I, And I, I think it's ongoing success or it's not about the date. It's going to be about whether it gets the funding. Mm. Because there is Victorian government funding that helps underpin that event, and there was a bit of murmuring around at Winton that oh, could this be the last time we actually come here? I mean, it's been discussed a few times over the years. Could that money end up maybe going to Phillip Island to mean that supercars go to Phillip Island instead of Winton, which I think would be a, a shame for Winton. They've and I've said this before. They've always made the place better. I, yeah. I went there the other weekend. I hadn't been since 2019. So obviously with COVID and not going to events and not having events. But they, you know, we wanted a longer track. We got it. We wanted new pit facilities as an industry. We got it. A new media centre, a new corporate hospitality. They've done more works there since I was there last out the back of the paddock and the pit area there to open it up and make it a bit easy to get around. What more can they do? It's a country racetrack. So yeah. I think they do a super job. Uh, and draws date- a crowd. If you if we're comparing Phillip Island to Winton, yeah. Winton generally draws a crowd. Yep, totally. And the weather was pretty good there. I mean, yeah, a bit chilly overnight and over morning, but during the days it was really good there. And, you know, there's plenty of people camping there, plenty of people who'd made the trip. Well, so they've really established their brand in recent years as being the event you go camp at and having yeah. all those camp- yeah. the, the campgrounds in the background shot is a really nice – I don't want to say unique feature because, of course, that happens at Mount Panorama, but it's really, really distinct 
distinctive it's, part of Winter's Brand. It's definitely grown from, and the fact from that, where it was. And the fact that they give away, they give away as the trophies now the snowboards to yeah, tie into the whole right. winter yeah, cold I like thing. It. Like it's a, yeah. 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 So yeah, I don't think they get a raw deal from supercars. I mean, it's got a f- – there's some events that you just can't change on the calendar, whether it's for – you know, you can't go to Darwin in the wet season, for example. You could, or, but you shouldn't. Yeah. yeah no, same, no and same idea. with Townsville. It's, yeah, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't work. But um, I hope it continues. I hope it finds a way to continue on the calendar because I think it's important that tracks that invest and tracks that get better and find ways to improve every time – you go there uh, supported and it's a bit of support each way. So fingers crossed that we um, keep Winton on the Supercars calendar at some point uh, in the future. Uh, Luke Batterston, if Danny Rick's out of F1 next year, what do you think's more likely out of going to the States and having a crack at IndyCar or coming back home and having a go at Supercars? Surely it's the States. He loves the United States. If he's going to go race anything, I reckon he's going there instead of coming here. Hmm. I tell you what, if you're supercars, you're stupid if you're not on the phone to him, pestering him to say, hey, if your contract for McLaren next year isn't fulfilled and you're allowed to race something, because that's the other thing here. He's got a contract. Hmm. But when you start to hear discussions in the press from Zach Brown, and who's backpedaled a little bit on it in recent times, talking about, oh, there's outs, which every contract has an out. Yeah. We've seen it in numerous sports. As we years. found out, the Japanese Grand Prix in 20, what, 2015 or 2014 when Sebastian Vettel turned up and said, hey, I'm leaving Red Bull. Yeah. Much to yeah. everyone's surprise. Yeah, yeah, what? So there's there's a bit of that. Um, I I can't see him. Uh, yeah, I know he loves the States. He's got a place there, doesn't he? Mm. Uh, who, who knows? He might be parked up under the contract or paid out, who knows. But I hope he stays. He's great for Formula yeah. One. But he's clearly been outpointed by Norris at McLaren. And, yeah, he's, he's definitely on the, the slippery slope down. Does he find somewhere else to go in Formula One that takes him on? Is he is he too old? Has the world moved on and they're all looking for their next superstar? I'd love to see supercars get aggressive, big picture think on this, try to find a way. If he's not racing next year or if he's not in Formula One, get him in some wild cards. Find a way to engineer him into your world because have a look at what – look at Trackhouse in NASCAR in the States. Yes, yeah. Like big – so big picture thinking, the whole um, Le Mans 24-hour Garage 56 extra entry for a NASCAR and then Trackhouse, which is an Amer- which is the team that was Chip Ganassi's NASCAR team that was mm. sold out in the offseason, they're putting in a program of – of international drive, running a car specifically for a range of international guest drivers, of which Kimi Raikkonen is the first one at Watkins Glen later in the year. Mm. Big picture think. Like, seriously, let's get on it. Big picture think requires big dollar, though. It doesn't need massive dollars. But, I don't think Kimmy came got, cheap. But you've got to have the big picture. I don't think Dan had come cheap either. He's made his money. He's made his money. Seriously. Mm. He's made piles at Renault. He's made piles at McLaren. He's been smart with his money, clearly. It gets to a point in life for some of these people that it's about doing what you want to do and what you enjoy doing. So he'll have enough – he'll be sweet in money. Like he'll, he'll get paid a decent amount to do it comparatively. But what I'm saying is have the, have the big picture thought process to begin with from this end to go, what can we do to make our game and our sport and our championship better? Daniel Ricciardo doing a race or two or three or some, having some form of involvement, that makes it better. Hundred percent. Unless he's running around at the back, I don't think that makes it better. Oh, but who, who's going to come from overseas and 
in any of those situations and no one's going to run the front straight away. No, exactly. So why are they going to do it? Well, if, if he's I'm not a chance of running in the top 10 or th- winning, that's the down the line why is he going to go the discussion? do it? My, my point is be big picture thinking and go and have the chat and go and be aggressive and go and try to make it happen. He might have that reason for saying no to it and not doing it. But if they're not asking the question or on the hunt or trying to make something happen. Can't get a yes if you don't ask. Correct. Yep, correct. Absolutely right. But Danny Rick in IndyCar would be interesting. I think he'd enjoy the ovals. He'd be good at it, I reckon. Yeah. Does anyway. love a fast corner. Yeah, true, true. Uh, John Street, this is an interesting one. We'll race through the last few. We've, we've had a lot of questions and we wanted to deal with as many as we can. Uh, he said the lack of spectators at the Shannons meeting on the weekend in Sydney um, with really only pit crews and friends there was a big worry. And I watched a little bit of the broadcast over the weekend and I thought the same thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there, there were there were cars on the hill. There were people around. The Jordan Cox fan club. At, the at, Jordan Cox fan Bond club, Band, though, yeah. did look like they made up 50% of the crowd. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> yes. They were pretty loud, that's for yeah. sure. SMP's always struggled to draw a crowd. For anything. It, for any, It's a long way to get out there. It's You can't get out there with public transport. Well, I wouldn't say always. I'd say in more recent Ooh, yeah. 10 odd years. You know, muscle car masters were still drawing really good crowds. True. Supercars in the early to mid two thousands still drew crowds, but if you went sort of twenty ten ish onwards, hmm. it's been a bit of a battle. But then there's the next question: is is it because everything's now on television? You can just watch. I watched it on the weekend. Flick on Stan Sport if you've got it. Bang, there it is. Every race. Don't have to be there if you're from Sydney. Can watch it all without having to go. Um, I worry, though, that we've lost the art of promotion mm. in motorsport in this country. You and I have chatted about this in the office in mm. recent times. I mean, it's a very different era. We've got television as a, a big element now where you can see it all. You know, you've got to pay, but across Supercars offering with Fox and KO, Stan with the, the ARG stuff, Speed Series, you've got access to it. It's there to get if you can if you can justify it to yourself to to pay it or you could afford to pay it. so And especially through the last two years where you really couldn't go to anything. Yeah, so it was sort of made for TV anyway. But it, it's a worry. I, I would rather be seeing more people at those events than what I saw on the weekend. And maybe they need to look at where they're taking those events to in future. Is there a bit of SMP fatigue in motorsport because supercars have been there five times in the last however many months? Mm. Should... They'd be looking at, you know, when I look back to, um, and I'll be fast here, you look back to Pro Car when they were the alternate series to supercars and super touring, they still drew comparatively okay crowds. Mm. But the the TCR and the Shannon stuff at some of the rounds, maybe they need to look at going to Malawa. You get five or 6,000 people under lights at Malawa. Yeah, every day, Every day of the week, put some local categories on with TCR and Trans Am and TCM and all that sort of stuff, and you've got a pretty good show. Isn't it better to have people there and it looks vibrant and busy and, you know, maybe there's a few venue choices that they need to go to for that reason rather than kind of just going to the same places. It would make an awful lot of sense. Yeah. It was a bit of a shame to see because I think they're they're racing mix of categories and cars and variety is good. The variety is spot on. We were both at the Shannon's Round at Phillip Island and you got a lot lot of entertainment over the course of a day. If I – and I don't have kids, but if I had kids – oh, I've got a seven-year-old nephew and a five-year-old niece. Mm -hmm. We took them to the TCR Round at Sandown back in 2019. If I was going to take kids to a race event, I'd take them to one of those. Yeah. 
plenty of different cars, always racing on the track. You can wander out the back of the pits really easily. You know, all the drivers are really accessible. The cars are way more accessible. It's the perfect type of event for families and kids and, and, and the pricing compared to other events, I would presume, would be Very quite competitive. competitive. Exactly. Mark Pickley, love the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Any chance of doing two a week or making them longer? Oh, Mark. Well, we <laughs> he actually doesn't do, ask for much, does he? No, no, no. Well, we actually do three a week. So we do this one, Repco Supercars Weekly, which is a short, sharp update podcast, and the Castrol Motorsport News podcast with the boys, with Stefan and Andrew, uh, every Tuesday. But I think he means two sleuth podcasts a week is probably where he's aiming that. It'd be nice. Uh, we certainly couldn't do two a week. I mean... We've got plenty going on in the business. There's plenty of other stuff to do. It's probably not um, justifiable that we could we could do that. Making them longer as well is also not really an option because it chews more time that it takes to do other things. And I don't think you want a really, really long podcast because it's great that people love what we do, but you also need to uh, – there needs to be a, there needs to be an end somewhere for things, doesn't there, really? For sure. I always leave them wanting more. Yeah, yeah, it's it's – it's um, Retail 101, isn't it? Yeah. That's not to say that we wouldn't potentially in the future add more different podcasts to the Motorsport Podcast Network. That's exactly right. We, we're well open to that and there's some chats going on about some various things for the future as well. Uh, Stephen Bell, what are the chances of a WEC race, that's the World Endurance Championship, in Australia in the future? All these new entrants and hypercars looks awesome. So I imagine that a WEC race would happening in Australia would be contingent on the Shahins hosting one at the bend because I can't see it stacking up for any other promoter in Australia as it basically bankrupted the light car of Club of Australia when they did it twice. Yeah, they, they just to be sure, they went back for another dip four <laughs> yeah. years on from 84 to 88. I think the chances are 0.0001. I can't see it stacking up for anybody in Australia. No, unfortunately. Uh, Shane Jenkins asks, why doesn't Ford enter a GT40 in the Bathurst 12-hour? Because it's building a GT3 spec Mustang. Mm. So I would think that would probably be far more a chance of getting a run in the next couple mm-hmm. of years when it comes online. Yep. Jordan Northcott asks, Noons, you started V8 Sleuth as a, car, as a car history website. A little while ago, you moved into the media space with podcasts, news, images, videos, memorabilia, and alongside AN1 Media. Was that planned at all coming from a media background or was it just opportunities that came up along the way? Um Big fan and an inspiration, that is for sure. Uh, probably best to point you to a podcast episode we kind of did on this, didn't we? Of yeah, back the story the end of behind V8 Sleuth. It was episode 86. So if you go back to our um, previous episodes, have a bit of a listen there. But um, no real progression was planned. Everything has just evolved from that starting point of V8 Sleuth car history tracking. No grand plan of if I do this and if we do this and this happens. I think that's sort of how things – organic is the word yes, probably springs yeah. to mind. It's probably how the best things in life happen where you don't really plan them and they just kind of work out because you're passionate about something and then there's people who are passionate as well who like to listen to it and read it and hear about it and know about it as well. And then there's blokes like yourself who are passionate and interested enough to come and work for us and yeah. do the stuff we do and it all sort of grows and rolls on from there. So that's probably the easiest way to – to answer it, but F86 is probably probably has more detailed answers for you. Last question from Colin Weber. Thoughts on the longevity of S5000 given the small fields lately? It's oh. it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a concern. Uh, you know, a national 
Open wheeler championships always going to struggle here. I love S5000's point of difference mm. from anything else that's in the Australian motorsport market. I like the cars. They sound great. I like the Australian engineering elements and elements that are invested in them and that have the amount of work that's been done here on them by Australian companies and uh, I think they race they race all right like they're they're tricky they're not they're not a slot car uh, that is part of an issue part that of is issue, part though, of the issue because it's, people wanting it, to go there or not go there well that's it it's a category where Categories are more sustainable. If you look at GT racing as an example, where the person who has the money can then go race the car, and that's really not an option in S5000 because of the level of difficulty yeah. in in wheeling one of these things. Yeah, and the longevity has to be called into question if this is the regular field. I mean, 8 to 10. I think at 14 to 16, it's solid. But even if you wheel 12 of these things around, with you know they've got some decent steers in there, Mm. Uh, you know, it makes a noise. It creates an impact. It makes people look over the fence or tune into their TV when they hear them because they've got a presence. And I worry, though, that in Colin's questions about longevity, and that's the important point and word in this question, mm. how much longer can you go if the field's around that size, if it's not 14 to 16 regularly and eight or nine is your norm, Think how back can that, you keep make that? How can you keep making that stack up for a long period of time? If you think back to the days of Formula Holden and Formula Brabham, that category struggled quite for quite a few years to have more than more than single figure cars on the grid regularly, mm. without being topped up by Formula Two cars or whatever else. Some of those glory years, we think in the early days of it, of Mark Scaife and Mark Larkham battling it out, but there were five it. other blokes in the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long-term issue of Australian Drivers' Championship and open-wheeler racing here in mm. Australia. I mean, it's touring cars and cars with roofs have become race cars here, which yeah. you know, open-wheeler fans will hate that, but it's kind of it's kind of the fact. Look, I, I hope that they can get a few more cars on the grid and not just do the, the fire sale, put a guy in a car for no money type thing because that will long-term not really solve the issue. So I, I hope that it can get some bigger fields because it's a cool element of that – package of the speed series that no one else has got that in Australian motorsport. So hmm. I hope that for its sake it can can step up and have more cars and and roll on because it's um it's a it's a category that's been delivered with a lot of passion and you know knowing Chris Lambden over the years it went through a lot of grief to get to this point. Um, yeah. so they fought so hard to get it here it would be a real shame if it kind of frittered away without being able to to really jump up and, and get rolling. Uh, that's us done for Q&A. Lots of Qs. Thanks so much to all of our listeners and our V8 Sleuth followers. Um, of course, the Castro Motorsport News Podcast every Tuesday, Repco Supercars Weekly every Thursday, sometimes Friday, depending on when there's some breaking news floating around. And, of course, the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco every Wednesday. Keep those questions flowing through the website, through our socials. We'll do another one of these in upcoming weeks. But in the meantime, we will chat to you again soon. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to this podcast. And we'll chat to you soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? 
Just search Red Joe, the number two, and oil and find out.